0: I'm very honored to be sort of part of this celebration of the 350th birthday of Jonathan Swift. Now the late Maurice Craig divided up his classic history of Dublin, which spans the two centuries, 1660 to 1860, into four parts, Ormond's Dublin, Swift's Dublin, Grattan's Dublin, and perhaps wisely, Who's Dublin for the last section. Therein lies, I suspect, the inspiration for the title today, uh, a challenge that I was uh, given, very happy to respond to when invited by Siobhan, even though unlike other speakers in this series, I am in no sense a Swiftian scholar. Swiftian scholars, I would explain to those who are not Swiftian scholars, are a very distinct subspecies uh, within the humanities world. Okay, the title, Swift's Dublin. Now, Craig's defense of his term. This is 60 more years ago. Craig's defense is interesting. I quote him. In almost every age worth studying, there is one great man whose name alone is sufficient to call it to mind. Ormond is the man for the last half of the 17th century and for the first half of the 18th, a still greater man stands symbol. From Swift, writes Craig, we get the color and the detail of the picture of the city. From the beggars to the bishops, from the apple women and almanac makers to the attorneys, aldermen and adventurers, dozens of minor figures who would otherwise be totally forgotten shine in his reflected light. Well, I was sort of seduced to follow much the same path in my recent history of the city when I chose to title, perhaps a little opaquely, the chapter spanning the same period, sort of 1690s to 1750s, as Injured Lady, echoing both Swift and Craig, my defense being that the sentiments running through Swift's famous 1710 allegorical essay entitled Injured Lady on the state of Ireland after Anglo-Scottish union, in other words, disappointment. Breach of trust, betrayal of the weaker party, Uh, those sentiments really become recurring and pervasive elements in public debate in Dublin, what with the forceful articulation of unredressed grievances of all manner and kinds by Protestant and Catholic and dissenters, competing grievances of course, uh, becoming the hallmark of the era, thanks not a little to the uh, efforts of Jonathan Swift. But is this all no more than a a literary conceit? Does it greatly overstate Swift's importance to talk about Swift's Dublin? Did Swift influence the city's development in any lasting way? After all, in his private correspondence, he distanced himself from this, quote, this nasty town, its dirt, its corruption, seeing it as a place of bitter exile, for one whose ambitions had centred on the world of Whitehall and Westminster and Lambeth. And he didn't abandon hopes of returning to London until uh, the late 1720s. Now through all his Irish writings, including his scabrous social commentaries written between 1720 and uh, 1730 on the utter poverty and misgovernment of Ireland, his focus was not on Dublin. There is almost no direct commentary on city issues. Of course, he adopted the moniker of the Liberties Drapier in 1724, and he championed extravagantly the cause of import substitution and domestic manufacturing, uh, uh, which uh, I mean we, we all know about. But we can search his writings in vain for, to find specific insights into the city's great woollen industry or its discontents. It's the depravity of rural poverty that comes through much more strongly in his famous State of Ireland in 1728 or the infamous Modest Proposal of uh, of 1729, uh, much more than, say, problems on his own doorstep. Now, admittedly, he did support and elaborate an essentially urban scheme for the badging of beggars and trialled it in his own uh, miniature bailiwick of St. Patrick's Liberty. But it's worth noting that at a really critical stage in the city's uh, physical development, Swift did not become involved. And despite his relative personal wealth, he did not follow many of his social peers into urban property development. Indeed, quite the reverse. As Louis Cullen has recently noted, Swift poured scorn on the very act of speculative building just as he excoriated the new breed of bankers and the paper money, air money, uh, that they were underwriting. It would be sounded slightly familiar. Even in the matter of his own cathedral, he, his impact is, well, limited. I mean, he opposed the plan to add a spire to the late medieval uh, Minutes Tower at the northwest corner. That project had to wait for his successor. And a few years after Swift's death, Semple's fine cathedral spire rose to become a graceful new landmark in the southwest quarter of the city, uh, the Liberties. So if we seek to use Swift's writings as an entree point into early 18th century Dublin, the results can be disappointing, if not misleading. We have to remind ourselves that over the three decades that Swift was in residence as Dean of St. Patrick's, From 1714 to his death in 1745, the city was undergoing huge and generally positive changes. Brick was completing its conquest of the old cage work houses. Great public buildings like the Linen Hall, the College Library, and Lovett Pierce's Parliament House were forming a new skyline, and substantial new streets were in the process of being created, from Henrietta Street on the north side to Dawson and Mulder Streets hereabouts. Trade in the port was expanding decade on decade, as was the scale of employment and the huge diversity of craft workshops now spreading across the western half of the city. And we're talking of a city that is now well over uh, uh, 100,000 inhabitants. The business part of the city, from Castle Street to Abbey Street, uh, was never busier. Dublin by the 1730s may have been much smokier and dirtier than it had been when Swift was a college student in the 1680s, but that was primarily because it was a substantially bigger, more diverse, and more complex city. So are we then to conclude that Morris Craig was a bit perverse in suggesting that Swift symbolized the early Georgian city? Swift, the bachelor denizen of the deanery extravagant champion of the Church of Ireland against all other sects and churches, the scourge of bankers, parliamentarians, and the de- and the degraded poor uh, in his midst? Are we just dazzled by his celebrity? Not least by the fact that here was a returned emigre who, from his library in Dublin, achieved almost instant international acclaim with the publication of Gulliver's Travels in 1725, and who stayed on in Dublin, more or less, after that event. Gulliver's success came, of course, almost immediately after the local sensation that was the Wood-Hapen's affair and Swift's pivotal role in ratcheting up uh, a national campaign of opposition to uh, the imported uh, uh, copper coinage. Indeed, there is a textual link between Gulliver and the drapier, the curious story of Lindalino, the rebellious city that Swift introduced into the narrative in part three of Gulliver's Travels, where, it si- where the Lindalino citizenry successfully deployed in what we might call ingenious asymmetrical tactics of war against their tyran- tyrannous overlords, the inhabitants of the flying island of Laputa. But that dangerous allegory on Dublin didn't appear in any 18th century edition. Of Gulliver's Travels. Okay, I think we can stop. We can let's say we can agree that given the extraordinary literary impact of the Drapier at home and of Gulliver's Travels abroad, it would be perverse to play down Swift in any panorama of 18th-century Dublin. But I think we can do better than that. I think we can make a substantially stronger case uh, in support of Morris Craig as to Swift's fundamental importance in Dublin history. It's not just those great canonical works that make him important for us. But staying with print, the wider impact that Swift had on the world of print, I think is a good starting point. Ian McBride has argued (coughs) that we shouldn't exaggerate the singularity of Dublin pamphlet publications in the 1720s in Swift's great decade, whether the 40 or so titles relating to Woods-Hapens or the several dozen other essays debating the wider social uh, conditions of the country. For he has reminded us that the, the pamphlet as the primary weapon in public controversy had arrived in Ireland, you know, 20 more years before the turn of the century and was evident in religious and party arguments in the intervening period. Now, that's true. But there's no getting away from the fact that the public impact and the circulation of the Drapier's letters was unprecedented, both within the capital and among the political class across the country. The tone and clarity of sentiment in the fourth letter was sensational, and rightly or wrongly, the subsequent withdrawal of the copper coinage um, was directly attributed to the galvanizing impact of Swift's words. Just. As his proposal for the universal use of Irish manufactures in 1720 had, um, had uh, impact or linked to impact uh, uh, on the withdrawal of the plan for the national uh, bank. Now, both of those—the Drapier's letters and the pr- more uh, the earlier proposal—had um, come at a human cost. Uh, the legal harassment of the printer, the proposal, Edward Waters, in 1720-21, and the printer of uh, Draper's Letters, John Harding, the young printer who suffered imprisonment and an early death shortly afterwards, much to Swift's mortification, which is sort of a reminder that throughout his Irish career, Swift danced close to the windy side of the law on censorship. Um, Indeed, he tempted such trouble. But the cumulative effect was to blunt, not to eliminate, but to blunt the power of the Irish Parliament to overawe opposition presses. So, in short, I think we can reasonably claim that the link between the printing press and opposition politics that we see then in Dublin, once forged in the 1720s, was never to be broken, perhaps until our own day. So. Turning quickly from ephemeral pamphlets to major texts, let's reflect on the production of Gulliver's Travels itself. It was, of course, first published in London and incognito, with the first incomplete Dublin edition appearing uh, the following year, 1726. But much more importantly, a corrected version of the Travels was published in 1735 in Dublin, part of the four decker works of. J S D D D S P D, Jonathan Swift, etc., edited and printed by George Faulkner, with Swift's approbation, and it seems, scholars of course love to debate, it seems Swift's oversight. The Swift Faulkner relationship has rightly attracted a great deal of scholarly attention. Faulkner, stationer, printer, bookseller, and publisher of the uh, eponymous Dublin Journal, uh, twice weekly from 1725 was fortunate in winning and holding Swift's trust and fortunate in living a long life. In Paul Pollard's words, Faulkner was, quote, a curious mixture of pomposity, prudence, vanity, wit, and ability. And together with his Catholic kinsman, James Hoey, Faulkner built up a highly successful business in Essex Street in effectively Temple Bar, a business which by Swift's death had helped propel Dublin into becoming the second most important location for English language publishing in the world, long behind London, admittedly, but ahead of rivals such as Edinburgh and Philadelphia. Swift may always have wanted to publish through London, but thanks to Faulkner's persistence and diplomacy, the successful first publication of the works in 1735 was a strategic achievement for the Dublin book trade and a remarkable solo effort by the young printer who, of course, went on to issue a further 16 volumes of Swift's works over the next 34 years. Now that first four-volume set, an example from uh, one of the uh, uh, volumes there in uh, the exhibition, that first four-volume set priced 17 shillings and fourpence on pre-publication orders, took more than two years to assemble before being printed on fine white Genoa paper in Octavo. The subscription list, analysed recently by James McLaverty, is revealing. Faulkner had secured private and commercial orders in England, but of the nearly 900 subscribers listed, the great majority were Irish-based, with peers and esquires making up half that number. Parliament men, Swift's Legion Club, were well represented. And the new speaker, Henry Boyle, antithesis of Swift in politics, uh, subscribed for six copies. At first sight, leading Dublin citizens seem underrepresented. There were a few aldermen, a few lawyers, and a mere handful of medics. Nevertheless, there were at least a dozen prominent wholesale merchant subscribers, Anglican, Quaker, and Catholic, and perhaps in all, 30 Catholic subscribers out of the nine hundred although it's difficult to determine how many of those were Dublin residents. But one of the most striking features of the 1735 subscription list was the prominence of fellow clergy. Over an eighth of all the sets to that edition were subscribed by Anglican and overwhelmingly Church of Ireland colleagues. Such a pattern of clerical book buying is confirmed in Toby Barnard's recent uh, great work on 18th century Irish uh, print culture, but the prominence of the official clergy, as we call them perhaps, brings us, I think, to a second point. In Swift's Dublin, the clergy of the established church were very visible. Indeed the church itself had recently become far more prominent uh, thanks to the energetic building program of of Archbishop William King between 1703 and 1729, during which time new parishes were carved out of old ones in the city. And 17 churches were built or rebuilt across his diocese. You might say a performance that even John Charles McQuaid might have been proud of. Well, of course, the Dublin of William King was a substantially Protestant town, perhaps more so at the moment when Swift returned in 1714 than at any other time before or after. At that stage, well over half the heads of household, whatever about the servants, were Protestant. Most of these were Irish-born, although Huguenot immigrants growing since the 1670s may have reached a peak of about 3,600 by 1720, constituting therefore about 5% of the city's uh, population or city heads of household anyway. And some of those Huguenots conform to the rights of the Church of Ireland, most not. And perhaps more than at any time before us, since senior figures in the Church of Ireland, in the Anglican Church of Ireland, were at the very center of Irish politics, whether as archbishops acting as deputy governors in the places of lord lieutenants, absent when parliaments were not in session, or lesser bishops as members of the Irish House of Lords, or parish clergy overseeing local government in the form of parish vestries. In Swifts, Dublin, the 18 city parishes, had very extensive civic responsibilities, charge of the night watch system, fire prevention, street and sidewalk maintenance, care of paupers and of abandoned infants. The Anglican-run civil parish had therefore, on paper at least, huge powers to shape life on the street. Now during Anne's reign, before 1714, during Anne's reign, the higher clergy of the Church of Ireland had become deeply politicized and profoundly affected by English party divisions as Whig and Tory battles spread to Ireland. The status of the established church vis-a-vis dissenting Protestantism had emerged as one of the great ideological battlegrounds. Swift was in the eye of the storm in London in the heady years between 1710 and 1713, the most articulate defender of the exclusive Tory position on the Anglican church. Then dropped, of course, by his patrons witnessing the collapse of the Tories with Anne's death and retreating to Dublin, where despite the Hanoverian succession in 1714, the strongly Tory heads, uh, strongly Tory bench of bishops uh, here remained in office, but of course deeply out of favor with the new Hanoverian Whig regime in Dublin Castle. The Tory bishops remained vocal in the Irish House of Lords, and over the next decade, they found themselves increasingly at one with moderate Irish Whig bishops, notably, notably William King and Edward Singh, the elder. The catalyst for that convergence was their common opposition to Westminster attempts uh, to curry favour with dissenting Protestants and uh, repeal the Irish Test Act of 1704 that had imposed a variety of legal restrictions on Presbyterians, Quakers, and Baptists. And then after that, uh, a further cause of resentment in Dublin was uh, the, the Westminster's move to declare the Irish Parliament, Lords and Commons, subservient to that of Great Britain. And that, of course, became the Westminster Declaratory Act of 1720. That's not the politics. But the arguments that I'm touching on here, the framing of those arguments against this interpretation of the Kingdom of Ireland's dependency was the work of many. But it is striking that it was the clergy, notably William King in the House of Lords, and Swift on the printed page, who materially developed that what's been called patriot culture of complaint, that sense of grievance and of constitutional slavery of Ireland to Great Britain which becomes a political discourse we can call Hibernian patriotism, elaborated elaborated later by Charles Lucas and Henry Flood, Berg and Henry Grattan over the next 60 years. Thus, at a particular moment, the late 1710s and early 1720s, it was a bitter clerical resentment of the emasculation of the bishop-dominated Irish House of Lords. And then the growing crown practice in London of filling Irish episcopal vacancies with obscure English appointees, well, not all obscure, but many of them were, uh, that united the likes of King and Swift, previous sort of party uh, enemy, uh, and trans- transformed their bitter critiques of London government into what we might call foundational texts in the development of Irish patriotic discourse. Now, if Irish-born Anglican clergy came to share common The divisions within the wider Protestant world were as sharp as ever in Swift's Dublin. Swift's particular animus was, and perhaps always had been, against dissenters, particularly the Presbyterians, and his opposition to any concessions to the Presbyterian lobby was unusually strong, although unlike the case in England, there were very few Irish Whigs actually willing to make such concessions. The Anglican fear of the advancing power of dissent Here. And inextricably linked to that, the fear of insidious Scottish influence was commonplace from the early years of the century. But a new element in that hostility was the growing financial power of Presbyterian, Baptist, and Quaker families in Dublin, many of them involved in the new linen industry, and most with strong family links in Ulster. The city was developing as the commercial and financial hub for what was principally a northern rural manufacture. Indeed, linen became probably the strongest pillar in Dublin's commercial growth during Swift's lifetime. The fact that all the private banks, some of them linked to linen, uh, operating in the 1720s were in the hands of dissenters goes some way to explaining Swift's visceral dislike of bankers and all that they stood for. Although as research on Swift's personal finances now being completed by Brendan Toomey, shows Swift was himself adept in the dark arts of borrowing and lending money privately, and shrewd in his decisions. And some of those close to him benefited by the very scheme, the South Sea bubble, uh, that he, more than any other writer, had extravagantly uh, ridiculed. And another irony, several private bankers, uh, Joseph Fade, James Latouche, Theobald Dillon, a Quaker, the Huguenot and the Catholic, uh, three private bankers were amongst those appearing on Faulkner's long subscription list uh, for Swift's works in 1735. Now, another insight into this divided Dublin Protestant world was a parallel existence of well, at least two informal learned networks uh, in the 1720s, uh, one centered on Swift himself, one on uh, Lord Molesworth, both of which are well documented. Old Molesworth had had a rather maverick political career in English politics before returning to swords in 1719, after which he championed at different times Catholic architects, Presbyterian divines, and local free thinkers. Um, Several in his his, uh, uh, circle began the Dublin Weekly Journal, which was very different to George Faulkner's humdrum newspaper. Uh, the weekly journal included short philosophical essays and indeed has some claim to be the city's first literary periodical. One of those publishing there was a young Presbyterian minister from the north, Francis Hutchison. His seminal philosophical work, An Inquiry into the Original of Our Ideas of, of uh, Beauty and Virtue, 1725, was composed while he was in Dublin and enjoying uh, Molesworth patronage. Hutchison's essentially optimistic reading of human nature and his belief in the innate qualities of altruism and public virtue, or that these were universal and waiting to be drawn out by education, stood in striking contrast to the Dean's morbid view of humanity <coughs> and indeed <coughs> of his scholastic theology. Coincidentally, Swift was completing Gulliver at the same time as Hutchison's text was being prepared for the printer. Swift may have admired Molesworth's economic writings, but as James Woolley reminded us in a recent lecture in this room, um, Swift's own circle of friends was also very eclectic. No earnest young Scottish divines, certainly like Hutchison, but the Sheridans, the Delaney's, Mary Barber, Constantia Grierson, William Duncan, the Pilkingtons, a diverse lot, but united by the worlds of literature, verse, wordplay, and certainly conversation. Okay, Swift's Little Liberty, I referred to a few minutes ago, the Little Liberty around the cathedral, the area that was his kind of manor attached uh, to his office, uh, lay between old, well-to-do streets to the east, towards St. Stephen's Green, and the Earl of Meal's much larger liberty to the west. A variety of retail markets and shambles, a shambles, dominated the thronged streets close to the cathedral itself. The me, the Liberty, since its rapid development in the restoration era, had been dominated by textile workshops, tallow channeling, and a variety of other processes that required an abundance of water. English, Dutch, and Huguenot master craftsmen and clothiers had been involved since the 1660s in a variety of cloth enterprises there, based in wool, silk, and linen. And the weavers were generally independent operatives working in their own premises. But dependent on commissions from neighbourhood drapers and shopkeepers in High Street and Meath Street. Now the history of this cluster of workshop industries is hard to reconstruct, and has not been written. It's clear that employment over the long run was probably growing unsteadily from uh, the 1660s up to the 1730s. We're talking here about several thousand households, Uh, but that the I think the experience was that the woolen and silk weavers and their families were always prone to sharp falls of income, given that they were working almost exclusively for an unsteady home market. Nevertheless, there were runs of very prosperous years, and the weaver's culture was touched by books and by a precocious interest in the wider world. The majority of the workshops at the beginning of the century were Protestant, but certainly not necessarily Anglican. In the first half of the 18th century, there was no Catholic place of worship in the Liberties. However, that was, I think, primarily a reflection of the Earl of Mead's uh, estate policy, not the actual absence of Catholics. In the uh, in, in Swift's era, Quaker businesses stand out in places like uh, Mead Street. But in a notable hint of changing times, uh, the Quaker meeting house in Ash Street, just a block outside the Liberties to the east, was acquired by the Carmelites uh, in the late 1720s. The most strongly Catholic streets of Dublin in Swift's time uh, were a, a, a few yards away, uh, from Francis Street, north across High Street, uh, down to uh, Cook Street, uh, and close uh, to the river. Yet we know that. Taig their schoolmaster, scribe, and organizer of Irish language activity in Swift's Dublin, did live in the Meath Liberties, just west of Meath Street, uh, it seems, for all his, his married life. <clears throat> and I think we can say that the Liberties in the 1720s and 30s were losing their immigrant character, and by the 1740s, uh, it seems that it was at least some of the Liberties' parishes, like uh, St. Nicholas without and St. Luke, that were... Among the first to show signs of trouble when food prices soared and when beggars flowed into the city. Just to the west of the Liberties and beyond the city basin, out beside the main road from the south, uh, uh, was Dublin's first workhouse, had been built shortly after 1700 in James Street and a considerable expense. But even by the standards of the era, that workhouse was very poorly managed saddled with over 70 governors, of whom Swift was indeed one. The workhouse had little enough impact in its early years and seems to have been quite overwhelmed by the soaring levels of rural vagrancy entering the city in various bad seasons of the 1720s. However, however an even more pressing problem, the swollen number of newborn infants being abandoned in city parishes, prompted legislation of 1730 that, in effect, forced the workhouse to become primarily a foundling hospital, which function it performed with, we can say, devastating ill effects for the rest of the century. But the waves of sickly rural beggars who in the bad years swarmed the the city's thoroughfares once or twice every decade, especially following severe harvest failures, remained a constant fear uh, for the well-to-do, the scale of the problem seems to become greater than ever in the hard years uh, uh, around 1720, 21, but more devastatingly so after the harvest failures between 1726 and 1728. That, of course, is what stirred a variety of political actors into print, not just Swift, and the purposefully shocking modest proposal which you have there. But beyond being the catalyst for Swift's last Canonical essay, the social crisis of the late 1720s may have sharpened his resolve as to the final disposition of his own wealth, his estate. He had ex officio involvement in a variety of public bodies in the city, but it was as a trustee of Richard Stevens' bequest to the city that he may have learnt most, for he was involved from 1721 in the plan for what became the first public hospital in the city, and he witnessed, I assume he witnessed, the value of keeping control of a great philanthropic project in a small number of disinterested hands. For a decade or more, he was involved in the purchase of the site and the commissioning of the architect, Thomas Berg. And Swift's Stella, Ethnel Johnson, dying in 1728, endowed uh, the project further. The hospital opened in 1733, uh, by which time Swift had resolved on his own charitable project an asylum for the insane, or in the words of his friend John Barber, which I prefer, an hospital for the unhappy. First he was going to entrust this to the corporation until the whiff of Presbyterian dissent in the council chamber was getting too strong for him. That was over. Then it was to be annexed to Dr. Stevens, uh, to the hospital project, and, uh, uh, and as things eventually turned out, more by accident than design, it was handled, that is his great project after his uh, death, was to be handled by a small standalone trust, albeit uh, to build beside uh, the Dr. Stevens hospital site, um, and its funding was very close. Uh, to the funding uh, behind the uh, Stevens uh, bequest. And it's very interesting to compare them and to see the, the links between the two uh, projects, one of which, as I say, completed uh, in 1733, uh, Swift's uh, bequest only leading to the admission of patients in uh, 21 years later uh, in 1756. Together with Mercer's Hospital, with which Swift was also involved, and the Hospital for Incurables, and the lying-in, the maternity hospital, we know as the Rotunda, established the year before Swift's death, these foundations formed a remarkable cluster of city institutions, the support of which was taken to be a religious obligation in the Anglican tradition. The almost complete absence of municipal initiative in the provision of civic welfare during what was an era of unprecedented urban growth, coupled with the disastrous history of the city workhouse left the field open for essentially philanthropic initiative and it's no coincidence that so many of the modern voluntary hospitals of Dublin emerged during Swift's lifetime and were indeed in large measure associated with Swift and or his friends so we might say this savage savage indignation left an unambiguously positive legacy in this sphere at least thank you